You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Michael Devereaux. Michael Devereaux was a petrol salesman living in Maudlinstown, County Wexford. By September of 1940, he was 24 years old and married with a small child. He was employed by the Shellmax Oil Company as a lorry driver and salesman and was a member of the IRA. The Northern Whig and Belfast Post described him as a commanding officer of the Wexford Battalion of the Irish Republican Army though he was also described by Michael Moroni as quartermaster. This title may have owed more to the lorry he drove and had access to than his true position in the IRA at the time, though. Devereux travelled often to Dublin and would bring messages to headquarters there to the chief of staff of the IRA and former commanding officer of Wexford, Stephen Hayes. Devereux was arrested in Enniscorthy with a number of other men on August 24, 1940, but was released a few days later. The men were suspected by the Gardaí to be associated with an illegal organisation, namely the IRA, and they weren't wrong. Devereux had been held by Gardaí in the special branch for two days before being released without charge, and after he returned home to Wexford. But a few days later, Gardy discovered an arms dump in the county. Suspicion fell on Devereux that he had disclosed the site of the arms cache to the Gardy, which had led to his release without charge. On top of that, a man named James Crofton told the IRA that Devereux had been put under pressure by the Garda Special Branch. Crofton himself was a member of the Special Branch, having been recruited to join up in 1932 from the IRA. He eventually became disillusioned with his work and its targeting of IRA members and began passing on information back to the organisation. Shortly after the arms were discovered in Wexford, Michael Devereux disappeared. On the evening of the 23rd of September, Devereux, his wife and their small child had driven from their home in Maudlinstown to see his parents at Ballyboher. A family member told the press that the 24-year-old had left his house for a second time that night after returning from his parents to meet a friend. The Gardee had appealed for information about him and his whereabouts six months after he was last seen. It would be nearly a full year before it was discovered what had become of Michael Devereux. On the 17th of September 1941, in a pit at Glenbower, County Tipperary, near to Carrick-on-Shore, Devereux's car was found. It had been broken up and was covered over with a bed of onions. The baby Ford had been hidden in part of a substantial farm in the isolated area. The car was broken up into pieces, the wheels and hood were taken off and the wings had been removed. Various bits of it were also found scattered around the district. Despite being broken up, the quote-unquote grave that had been dug for it was still quite large, and it seemed reasonable at the time to conclude that it must have taken a number of men to excavate it. 
there were no fingerprints or bloodstains visible by the time the car was dug up. With that discovery, the search for the missing man intensified. Further digs took place on the farmland where the car was discovered. Scores of members of the Gardaí began scouring the nearby countryside for further indications of what might have happened to the man. Shortly after the discovery of the car was made, a body was found on the desolate and boggy slopes of Slevenamon. The man's body had been left in a fissure in the mountainside and covered with a pile of stones. It was the man-made look to the pile of stones that had marked the spot out in the countryside, though the public would later learn that this was not the only help the Gardaí had in the search. When the stones were removed, one by one, Michael Devereux was discovered half-lying, half-sitting in the gully. Armed guards were posted around the discovery, which remained untouched while awaiting the arrival of the state pathologist to make his examination. When Devereux's remains were examined on site by the state pathologist, Dr. John McGrath, a gunshot wound in his head was identified. An inquest was opened shortly after in Fettered at 9am the following morning. The name of the man whose body had been recovered was not disclosed at the time, not to the press or even to the jury of men called before the coroner's court. The body had been identified, though, through items found on it. There was an insurance certificate, a photograph of a child, and a number of miraculous medals on the belt indicating that this had been Michael Devereux. As the examination of the remains had yet to be completed, the inquest was adjourned at that time. On Tuesday the 30th of September, a funeral was held in Tom Haggard, County Wexford. Michael Devereux was buried in the nearby St Anne's graveyard. On the 2nd of October, the Irish Times carried a report saying that five men had been detained by the guards in relation to the matter, and four of them had been sent to Dublin. A sixth man had been detained and released at the same time. It was speculated that the authorities thought that there was some sort of political motivation for Devereux's disappearance. On Tuesday the 9th of December 1941, George Plant, 37, of Fettered, stood trial in Collins Barracks before the Special Criminal Court, charged with the murder of Michael Devereux. George Plant was born in 1906 in Fettered, County Tipperary, and was one of seven children in a strict Protestant family. But after an encounter with the RIC in 1916, Plant found himself drawn to the Republican cause. He joined up with Fianna Aaron, the youth wing of the Irish Volunteers, and by 1919 he joined the Volunteers by that stage calling themselves the IRA in the midst of the Civil War. He was deeply involved in the organisation, and despite living abroad for a number of years, he maintained close contacts. When he finally returned to Ireland for good, he resumed his membership. Alongside Plant at the Special Criminal Court was Joseph O'Connor from Brosna, County Kerry, who was charged with having procured or commanded the murder. Joseph O'Connor was in charge of the IRA in the southeast. Both men pleaded not guilty. It was argued by the prosecution that Michael Devereux had been killed by members of an illegal organisation who suspected that he was a spy amongst their ranks. Sean McBride, acting as counsel for both men, requested that they be tried separately, but this application was refused by the court. The judges of the Special Criminal Court also rejected his suggestion that it had no jurisdiction to hear the case without it first being investigated by another court. 
Relating to the suggestion that Devereux was a spy, McBride said, quote, The court and the defence are entitled to know at the outset whether this man was a police agent, and if he was not, the defence is entitled to know whether he was represented by the authorities to be a police agent, end quote. But the court ruled that this was not something that they were concerned with. Mr. McCarthy, acting for the chief state solicitor and the attorney general, laid out the prosecution case. He said that Devereux's murder had been planned and carried out carefully, and that there was a, quote, impenetrable wall of silence built around it, end quote. Before Devereux's disappearance, a meeting in Moon Coin, County Kilkenny, had taken place between Michael Walsh, an IRA divisional training officer in the southeast, and Joseph O'Connor, where Mr. Walsh was shown a document by this defendant stating that Devereux was to be removed or put away. Mr. Walsh then went to Wexford to make inquiries about the deceased, but when he returned, he told the defendants, Mr. Plant and Mr. O'Connor, that his mission had been unsuccessful. It was alleged that Walsh and the defendant Plant then headed to Wexford themselves and were given revolvers and ammunition by O'Connor. They met up with other men, also members of the IRA, a Mr. Cullimore and a Mr. Simon Murphy. The group then tried to locate Mr. Devereux, but they learned that that Sunday morning, Michael Devereux had gone up to Dublin to watch a football match. Plant and Walsh went back to New Ross. The next day, Simon Murphy called Devereux and spoke with him that evening. Devereux left his home to meet with Mr. Murphy at a field outside Wexford Town. Murphy, Plant and Thomas Cullimore, the commanding officer of the Wexford Battalion, were all at the field and saw Devereux arrive in his car, and Cullimore hid. Plant and Murphy told Devereux that Cullimore had been killed and that they now needed his help to flee the country. They asked the deceased to drive them away, and after some convincing, the 24-year-old agreed. They drove through the night, arriving in Tipperary, where Devereux was then held prisoner under armed guard, eventually spending a number of nights at a house owned by a man named Burke. The defendant, Mr. Plant, hid the car at William Phelan's farm in nearby Clarkin, and two other men, James Quinn and Patrick Davern, arrived to help guard Devereux. It was alleged that on Friday the 27th of September 1940, Plant and Davern left Burke's house with Devereux and brought him through the fields and up the Slevenamon Mountain. Plant then pointed a revolver at Devereux and accused him of being a spy, which Devereux denied. Then Plant shot him once in the head. Mr. McCarthy said, quote, There, 1,300 feet above the River Anner, this young man, a husband and father, unshriven, unprepared, and almost without notice, was hurled into eternity with a bullet in his head and without a prayer to mark his passing. End quote. Afterward, his body was thrown into a hole which wasn't quite big enough, so the men piled stones on top of him. When a bulletin looking for information on Devereux's disappearance was broadcast six months after he went missing, Quinn and Phelan, on instruction from the defendant Mr. Walsh, dismantled the car with the help of a mechanic and brought parts of it away. Some of it ended up buried, some of it was put into the fields, others used for parts, and more was repurposed. 
McCarthy told the court, quote, I have shown that there was an IRA conspiracy to kill Devereaux and that this was carried out by O'Connor and Plant with the assistance of Walsh up to the time that Walsh remained in Burke's house. There is no doubt that Walsh and Davern stand before this court as accomplices in this crime and the prosecution does not say that they should be regarded as other than accomplices, end quote. Then a chief superintendent gave evidence about the discovery of the body and it was revealed that police had found the body on the mountain with the assistance of Mr. Davern. Sean McBride asked him if he knew whether Devereaux had been an informant or not. McCarthy interjected, asking if it was relevant, to which McBride responded asking if the state wanted this aspect of the matter hushed up. But the judges said once again that the court was not there to adjudicate whether Devereaux had been an informant, and if he had been, it still wouldn't serve as a justification for his death. The superintendent resumed evidence and said that neither he nor any other officer had suggested to O'Connor that if he made a statement implicating Mr. Plant in the murder, he would be let off. He said he never showed O'Connor a document purporting to be a confession made by a man named Stephen Hayes either, but he had referred to it while questioning the man. This Hayes document would prove to be far more important than a passing reference and a brief, innocuous question posed by the defence lawyers. In spring of 1941, suspicions arose that Stephen Hayes, the chief of staff of the IRA, might have turned informant. The organisation had suffered a number of setbacks in recent times, with an increase in arrests and seizures of arms seen. This was paired with a crackdown on IRA activity in light of the ongoing wars in Europe. In particular, the Fianna Fáil government of the time was concerned that contacts the IRA had with Nazi Germany might compromise the country's neutrality and drag Ireland into a war as a target. A number of members of the IRA were so convinced that Hayes was a turncoat that he was kidnapped in April of 1941 and held captive in a number of IRA safe houses throughout the country. In July of that year, he was officially court-martialed by the IRA and faced a sentence of death. But to stave off his execution, Hayes agreed to give a complete confession. He took his time in writing it out, meaning his scheduled murder by the IRA was first postponed for days and then for weeks. Eventually, in September of 1941, Hayes managed to escape and presented himself at the nearest Garda station in Rathmines. However, the confession document remained, and parts of it were circulated among IRA members. It had named Michael Devereaux as an agent of the police. On the second day of proceedings at the Special Criminal Court, a number of witnesses appeared. However, not all of them gave evidence. When Michael Walsh was called to the stand, he told the court that he wouldn't be sworn in. The president of the court told Walsh that it was his duty as a citizen to give evidence when so ordered by a court and reminded him that not cooperating would come with consequences. But Walsh said he would not give evidence. He was ordered to be arrested by the court and was later formally charged with murder, with his trial being fixed for the 30th of December. 
Simon Murphy of Wexford, the man who the state alleged had arranged for Devereux to drive and meet Plant and Walsh, was then called to give testimony, but he too refused to give evidence. He swore the oath, but then said he was not going to be answering questions. Murphy was then also taken into custody. Then Patrick Davern, alleged to be on the scene at the time of Devereux's shooting, also refused to give evidence. He declined to even take the oath and said, quote, I cannot see my way to give evidence, end quote. He was arrested and then later formally charged with the murder of Michael Devereux. Then Mrs. Mary Devereux gave evidence regarding her husband's disappearance. The two had married on the 13th of July, 1938, and she'd last seen her husband alive on the 23rd of September, 1940. She said a man had called to the house while Devereux was away in Dublin, and then her husband had left the house the following night, near to 10pm. He'd had with him a picture of his child, a wireless battery, and a bag of potatoes, and he never returned. She identified the body found as her husband by the scraps of material that had been found alongside the remains that sleeved him on. A ballistics expert from the Garda Chiacana spoke about the wound that had been inflicted on Michael Devereux and said that the bullet recovered from the burial site had been a four fifty five caliber. Pathologist Dr. John McGrath described for the court Devereux's remains. He'd been found with a number of personal items, in particular a folded car insurance document and driving license, both of which had identified the man early on. There was also a scrap of material left around his neck that appeared to be the remains of a gag. Devereux had died nearly instantaneously due to a bullet wound to the head, and the remains of that bullet, which had partially disintegrated, were also found in the gully alongside the body. Miss Ellen Nolan recalled for the judges of the Special Criminal Court that in September of 1940, three men called to the house that she shared with her brother, John Nolan, in Heathview, County Tipperary. They'd arrived at about 7am. When her brother went to work at the creamery, the three men went upstairs and they stayed there for a while. The men had left at nine o'clock that evening and had taken a motor car with them. They never returned after that. McCarthy for the state asked Ms. Nolan if she could see any of the men that had come to her house that day in the court. He had her stand in the witness box and the lawyer gestured towards the dock where the defendant sat. Sean McBride was none too pleased with this and objected, saying that this notion of an identification was a farce. Ms. Nolan, however, said that Mr. Plant was most like one of the men she had seen. McCarthy also asked that Michael Walsh, who was in custody at the time, be brought to the court to see if Ms. Nolan could identify him. Again, Sean McBride objected to this. The court ruled that this wasn't allowed as evidence as Mr. Walsh had already been charged with an offence. Then Mr. James Burke of Glenaskill Tipperary described how on a night in September, Michael Walsh, Jim Landy and a man he'd never seen before arrived at his house. Shortly after, George Plant and Pat Devern arrived too. He knew Devern and Landy who were local, but not the others. The men had sat up all night at the fire drinking tea and had stayed for a number of days. The witness had gone to Carrick on shore on the Friday morning and when he returned, none of the men were in the house. 
He'd never heard the name of the fifth man, the stranger, in that time. James Burke identified Plant as one of the men who had been in his house, but had previously failed to identify him at an ID parade in the Bridewell in November. Mr. Burke told Sean McBride that he would not swear positively that the man he'd just picked out in the dock was one of the men he'd seen. It was only after all these witnesses were heard that Mr. McCarthy for the state got to his feet and informed the court that, in the absence of evidence from Mr. Walsh and Mr. Davern, he was entering a nolle prosequi in the case of Mr. O'Connor, and the state was not prepared to pursue the charges at that time. The defendant was then discharged. After this strange turn of events, Mr. James Quinn of Curasala County Tipperary told the court that he had spent some time in Mr. Burke's home with two men he didn't know. The door had been opened to him by a stranger, and the stranger, he said, was not present in the court. Mr. Quinn told the court that he had made a statement to the guardee, but now said that this statement was false. Counsel on behalf of the state was granted permission to treat Mr. Quinn as a hostile witness and he was asked why he had given a false statement. Quinn said it was because when he'd been told that he was charged with murder, he'd panicked. He said, quote, I was told that I had blood on me and that the rope was around my neck. That broke my nerve and I did not know what I was saying, end quote. Mr. Quinn did admit that he had buried the car when he was asked by the prosecution counsel. He described how he had been at Mr. Phelan's farm one day and a strange man arrived and said the car parts were to be buried. Later, Quinn had shown parts of the car he had hidden to the guardie, but he testified he didn't know who had owned the car. When the proceedings in the special criminal court resumed the following morning, McCarthy for the state announced that the Attorney General had considered the case overnight and had decided, given the failure of witnesses to give testimony, that a nolle prosequi would be entered in relation to George Plant, too. McBride, in response, said that the state had put forward what they had in terms of the strongest evidence against the accused. Plant had stood trial for his life and should therefore be acquitted of the charges if the state felt they could not be proved. But the president of the court wouldn't hear that argument and simply discharged Mr. Plant. Plant was immediately taken into custody again. Both he and O'Connor continued to be held at Arbor Hill Military Barracks. Shortly after the collapse of this trial, Patrick Davern of Newmile House County Tipperary and Michael Walsh were both charged with murder and slated to appear before the Special Criminal Court on the 30th of December 1940. However, that date was put off when Sean McBride became senior counsel for Devron and Mr. McBride asked for more time to prepare. This was agreed to by counsel acting for the chief state solicitor, Mr. G.D. Murnahan, who told the court during the application on the 22nd of December that they were also serving the summary of evidence to be used in the eventual trial, and that depositions in the matter would not be required. The matter was rescheduled for a full hearing before the special criminal court, to begin on the 6th of January, 1942. But on New Year's Eve, 1941, after an order made by the government under the Emergency Powers Act, the military court heard that four men would appear before that court on the 6th of January, facing charges of murder in relation to Michael Devereux's case. 
The Emergency Powers Act had been passed in the Dáil in 1939 to deal with the impact of the war in Europe and Ireland. Another goal it had was to try and curb some of the IRA activity ongoing at the time to preserve Ireland's neutrality and perhaps also control what was seen as a remaining political opposition to the government by anti-treaty actors. Under the Act, persons accused of offences specified in a government order would be tried in a military court, which was made up of three military officers. The only penalty available in such a court was death, and there was no recourse for appeal. Order 41F directed that four men be tried in connection with Michael Devereux's murder. George Plant, Joseph O'Connor, Michael Walsh and Patrick Davern. Another order was separately issued that related to the procedures that could be used in the military courts. Order 139 said in part, if on an occasion during a trial, a military court considers it proper that it should not be bound by any rule of evidence, it might then disregard that rule. There was a near-immediate reaction to the impact that Order 139 would have on the trial it appeared to have been issued specifically for, and the future impact such an order might have. Opposition parties in the Dáil objected to it, and a motion for the annulment of the order was tabled in both the Dáil and the Shannad in the opening months of 1942. Both, however, failed and ultimately made no difference to the proceedings which were ongoing before the military court. These arguments were also heard in court, made by lawyers for the defence, and a number of proceedings occurred alongside one another in January of 1942. Sean McBride appeared before the military court at that time to object to the charging of his clients because two of the accused men had already been tried with a nulla prosequi entered at a late stage during those proceedings. Trying them again in the same matter in the military court, he argued, was double jeopardy, and the Emergency Powers Act had no ability to allow that. He said that it would be contempt if the military court took up the proceedings in relation to Davern and Walsh, who were expected before the special criminal court too. But the president of the military court said that McBride had to confine his submissions to the order in question. McBride insisted, saying, quote, The Emergency Powers Act, Order 41 and 41F, have been made to deal with the state of war which prevails in Europe, and I submit the present procedure has been adopted to cover legal bungling, end quote. Again, the judge said that this was beyond his jurisdiction, and the four men were charged and remanded in military custody. The following day, Mr Justice Black heard a habeas corpus application in the High Court relating to the case. The application was on behalf of all four men now charged with Michael Devereux's murder. Because of this, a further hearing was scheduled for further submissions to be made, and the trial to be heard in the military court was postponed. McBride once again made the argument that Plant and O'Connor had been tried by the Special Criminal Court and de nolle prosequi had been issued during the course of that trial. He said that the subsequent order of that court discharging the men meant that to recharge and retry them would be double jeopardy. He conceded that the nolle prosequi in and of itself did not bar the Attorney General from preferring further charges, but the collapse of the trial, followed by the court order, did. 
Mr. Walsh had been charged at first with counselling and procuring, and these charges had been dropped before the charge of murder was laid, with the case to be heard before the special criminal court. Now Walsh was in the position where he was awaiting trial on the same charges in two different courts, both the special and the military court. Davern was in the same position, awaiting trial in the two courts as well, and on the same day. He couldn't even be physically present where he had been ordered to appear by these courts. On the 5th of January, Michael Walsh and Patrick Devon both appeared before the Special Criminal Court and a nolle prosequi was entered in this case. They were to be tried before the military court and, therefore, the prosecution at the Special Criminal Court would not be pursued. Counsel for the Chief State Solicitors, Mr McCarthy and Mr Murnahan, entered the nolle prosequi and once again, Sean McBride appeared for the defendants. He outlined the situation regarding the prosecution pending in the military court and asked that the matter be closely scrutinised by the judges. There had been no order directing the transfer of the matter to the military court, and it appeared that the orders made whereby Mr Walsh was to be tried separately from the other men would not be carried over to this new proceeding. Further, the evidence that had been produced that was to be used against the four men in both courts showed there was no fresh evidence that had come to light. In the end, the judges at the Special Criminal Court accepted the nolle prosequi and discharged the men from custody of that court, though it was noted that the men would remain in custody pending the outcome of the proceedings in the military court. Next was an appearance at the military court. McCarthy, again acting for the state, said that the military court were entirely in control of proceedings before that court, as it was set out in legislation that this court would dictate its own procedures, which was, after all, similar to other courts set up in the state by statute. He did admit, though, that the military court had no rules of procedure set out, nor was there a route for appeals. Legislation passed by the Oireachtas also provided that it was able to deal with matters summarily, that is, without a jury present, unlike its civil counterparts in the Central Criminal Court. McCarthy went on to say that the constitutional rights of the citizen could be limited by an act of the Oireachtas in times of emergency, and therefore these rights usually granted by Bunrock Naharan could not interfere with the working of the military court so established. All that being said, though, McCarthy told the court that there were proceedings ongoing in the High Court in relation to habeas corpus applications, and an application to prohibit the trial going ahead as scheduled by the military court. He said the offence dated back to September 1940 and the prisoners had been in military custody for some time, that the investigation into the crimes alleged had also taken a considerable length of time and taken together, though it was of course purely a matter for the court to decide upon, McCarthy thought it reasonable that an adjournment might be granted in the case. Sean McBride then spoke for the defendants once more and reiterated the issues that he had with utilising the military court in this instance, saying that the executive had sought to interfere with court procedures in this case. The adjournment was granted and the defendants were remanded back into custody. The habeas corpus application began on Tuesday the 13th of January 1942 before the President of the High Court, Mr Justice Gavin Duffy, and Mr Justice Martin Maguire. Sean McBride was joined by Mr Lavery, Senior Counsel. Counsel for the defendants raised the concern that this would be the first time in the history of the Irish courts, going back to the days of the Stuarts, 
that individuals would be recharged after a nulli prosequi had been entered. Differing from this precedent in this case would be new law. Lavery believed that Order 139, allowing witness statements to be read into court, rather than having the witness examined in person on the stand, was made specifically for the trial in the Devereux case. Lavery said that he was, quote, not making any extreme proposition to say that if a citizen were sent before such a court, his rights were not being defended, end quote. Lavery argued that the state had stepped in and bypassed the courts and changed the law under the Emergency Powers Act to do as they pleased. He said, quote, the attitude of the government and its legal advisers apparently is that if a case, be it civil or criminal, in which the state is a party or even in respect of which the state is not a party but likes to support one of the parties, the trial may be stopped and the law changed and the accused brought to trial under the altered law, end quote. Further, the military court would be composed of laymen and would not be bound by established court procedure or the laws of evidence. There was also a specific provision made that would, where two or more people were tried together, allow statements made by one of the defendants to be used as evidence against all of them. Lavery thought this particular provision had likely been made specifically to deal with issues arising in the case of these four men but would now, startlingly, be capable of being used against any citizen who found themselves before this special military court in the future. Hearsay was another problem Lavery pointed out. Police could make statements of information that they'd been told by others, and so long as it was sworn to in a statement made by them, this would be accepted by the court. Lavery said that he wasn't asking the courts to assume that the military court was unreasonable, as it was sufficient to conclude that it might be unreasonable. Mr. McBride agreed. He said that, quote, a military court, whose appointment was at the hands of a political executive, vested with powers of life and death over others, without trial under any rule of law or rule of evidence, was not in accordance with the objects set out in the preamble to the Constitution that the common good was to be promoted, end quote. He wasn't suggesting that the executive would abuse their powers, but also pointed out that governments weren't everlasting and that circumstances could change. It was a slippery slope. But Mr Justice Maguire was very reticent about the idea of anticipating how the military court might function. The following day, when the hearing resumed, the judges sitting at the High Court told the lawyers present on behalf of the state and the governor of Arbor Hill that their arguments didn't need to be heard. And so on Friday the 16th of January 1942, the court ruled, denying both the application for habeas corpus orders and for the prohibition of the proceedings that were to occur in the military court. The fact of the matter was that Article 28 of the Constitution allowed the government to issue orders and enact legislation such as had been done with the Emergency Powers Act. It was clear that the Constitution was not to be used by the courts to invalidate such enactments. The judges did say, however, that Order 139 and 41F, quote, admittedly involved a radical departure from the recognised rules of procedure that regulated the trial of criminal offences, end quote. But nevertheless, the Constitution prevented the High Court from considering those orders. This was a time of war, as described by the subsection, and a national emergency existed as declared by the Oireachtas.
An appeal to the Supreme Court was expected in the wake of this decision, and this was heard on the 21st of January, with the defendant's legal team saying that the High Court had erred in law in determining it had no jurisdiction to examine the emergency power orders involved or in determining whether the military court was a lawful court. The High Court had also erred in their interpretation of Article 28.3 of the Irish Constitution because following that interpretation meant that citizens couldn't secure the protection of their rights at any point the state declared an emergency. Given the current emergency had been declared on the basis of a war abroad in which we were neutral, and it appeared that under the orders issued by government, the courts could be entirely avoided. This seemed like an entirely too easy and arbitrary way for the government to circumvent the judiciary as they pleased. The ability for the prosecution to use statements as evidence was also a violation of justice. Further, Lavery said that because his colleagues on the opposing side of the case had not made their arguments in court, he was therefore unable to determine the specific grounds on which the court's refusal had been based. In opposition, Mr. McCarthy for the state said that in this case the entering of a nolle prosequi was not as unusual as had been made out by the defendant's lawyers. It was the case that an attorney general might withdraw the case for various reasons, including mistrial, and lay fresh indictments at a later date. According to the state, there had been an interference and conspiracy to frustrate the course of justice in this case by people involved who were members of an illegal organisation, and given the circumstances the government was left with, they had made arrangements outside of the ordinary means available to them to see that justice was carried out, as was their duty to the citizens who had elected them. The judgment of the Supreme Court was delivered on the 27th of January, 1942, concluding what was a nearly month-long legal argument regarding the prosecutions. McBride and Lavery had lost their arguments. The state won out. The four men would face trial before the military court, with the first hearing in those proceedings fixed for the 3rd of February. It was adjourned, however. On Friday, the 6th of February, solicitors acting on behalf of Michael Walsh and Patrick Davern requested another adjournment in the military court. The president of that court was informed that Sean McBride had handed back the brief, refusing to take the case further after the court's decision that the men would be tried together. Mr. Lavery was also unable to act on their behalf owing to other commitments. However, the order was refused. But when the day of the next hearing came about, the case was adjourned, after an application was made by Walsh's new counsel in the case, Mr. P.J. Rowe, who told the court he had received the brief only a few days before. Mr. Barra O'Brien made a similar application in relation to his client, Patrick Devern. The president of the court said that it would be the last delay granted in the case. Finally, the trial of the four men began in the military court on Thursday the 12th of February 1942, and all of them pleaded not guilty to the charges of murder against them. The case for the state was then presented once again by Mr. McCarthy, describing how Devereux's body had been found and the circumstances around his disappearance the year before. 
McCarthy said that it would be shown that this was an IRA organized murder and conspiracy to murder, and each of the accused had played a specific role in that murder and had been privy to information regarding it. O'Connor had been the controlling hand. Walsh had lured Devereaux out. Plant had fired the bullet that killed him and Davern had aided and abetted Plant. Counsels for the defence objected to matters being brought up in that opening speech, saying McCarthy had cited things which might not later be admitted in evidence. But McCarthy rebutted that he was stating the facts he would set out to prove and had made no reference to statements. But McCarthy said he only avoided mentioning the contents of the statements in deference to his colleagues, the defence counsel, and said he would only be relying on Order 139 in relation to the statements if he was forced to do so through witnesses either not attending or refusing to answer questions on the stand. McBride then asked, as he had during the original trial in the Special Criminal Court, for confirmation of whether the victim, Mr. Devereaux, had been a spy, as this was the motive put forward by the state for his killing by the accused. But McCarthy said he couldn't say if Devereaux or anyone else had been a spy for the police, and further reiterated that the motive for Devereaux's murder did not matter. Witnesses who had given evidence at the abortive trial at the Special Criminal Court were called forward once again. The judges of the military court heard how Devereaux's body had been discovered, the men's arrival in rural County Tipperary at the Nolan House, and the evidence of the medical examiner. Then, Simon Murphy, still serving his six-month sentence for contempt of court in December, was brought to the court. He once again refused to testify. Instead, a chief superintendent of the Garda Shikana stood up and told the court that he had seen Murphy at his office in Clonmel and had spoken with him. At that point, Mr. Rowe, for Walsh, told the court that he had not been furnished with Mr. Murphy's statement and that the Attorney General had directed that this should be furnished if the statements were used under Order 139. And so McCarthy handed over a copy. Mr. O'Brien for Mr. Davern said that given that Murphy was present, Order 139 didn't apply. That order had specified where a person was not present or had died that statements wouldn't be allowed. Mr. Murphy was present in the court. McBride for Plant and O'Connor said that the Minister for Justice had said in the doll on the 23rd of January that the order would not be allowed to be used to enter hearsay into evidence, but that this statement which was proposed to be read had a considerable amount of hearsay within it. Then, the President of the Court suggested that they leave over the matter of Murphy's evidence until later. In the meantime, evidence was heard again from Mr Nolan, who had the men in his house before Devereaux's death. McBride cross-examined Nolan, and it was revealed to the Court that this man had been in custody since the 9th of December in the Curra and in Mount Joy. But Mr Nolan said that he was all right and had been treated well in the military prison, and that he'd told the truth on the stand. Miss Nolan, John's sister, then gave her evidence and identified Plant and Walsh as the men she'd seen at her farmhouse. James Burke then told the military court that three men, Plant, Walsh and Devon, arrived at his house with a stranger and that they'd stayed there until he'd left for Carrick on shore. He'd been picked up by the guardie after the discovery of the car, and was held alongside the other men. 
Burke told the court he'd spoken to Mr. Walsh, who advised that he make a statement, saying the rest of the men who had been detained had also made them. Simon Murphy was then called once more, but he refused again to give evidence despite a warning from the judge. He said no one had threatened him to cause this refusal. His statement was then ruled to be voluntary and admissible by the court. Murphy disputed the fact that the chief superintendent had cautioned him, though. The chief superintendent then gave evidence that he had spoken to Mr. Murphy after the discovery of Devereux's body, and that Murphy had wept when he was told that the man had been found. Murphy had then given him a statement and had been released. The statement described how Thomas Cullimore had asked him to deliver a message to Devereux to meet up the night of Devereux's disappearance. The chief superintendent told the court he hadn't been satisfied that Murphy had told the full truth. He went on to tell the court that on the 6th of October, Murphy had been brought back into custody. Mr. Murphy had told him that he was scared of retaliation from the IRA and had asked for police protection in order for him to make a voluntary statement. Murphy had then told the guard that he had been a member of the IRA and knew that Devereux was associated with the Wexford Battalion. Murphy had been told that Devereux was to be court-martialed because he'd told the guardee where arms dumps were when he'd been arrested in Dublin just before his disappearance. Murphy went on to say that he'd had no knowledge of the murder plot per se, that Walsh and Plant had told him that Devereux was to be taken out of the country, but Murphy told the guard that he didn't know where Devereux was to be taken. Sean McBride then asked the guard a witness if he had heard Plant being beaten up while he was in the station, but the superintendent said no, he'd not heard anything of the sort. The guard also said he had no knowledge of accusations that Mr. Walsh's arms had been twisted behind his back and that he'd been threatened with a rope, suggesting he'd be hanged. Next, James Quinn gave evidence about seeing Davron and Plant and a prisoner that was being held at Burke's house in September of 1940. He told the court that he'd also helped to bury the car around the same time. Further police witnesses denied allegations of misconduct on their part in the course of taking statements from the men suspected of taking part in illegal activities related to the IRA. This included bringing one of the accused to an isolated boreen and beating him with a revolver and threatening to shoot him if he didn't make a statement that George Plant shot Michael Devereux. Each member of the Guardie denied that abuse was carried out in order to secure statements from the accused men and said that statements made by the defendants to the police had been given willingly. They'd had no reason to suspect that this was not the case either. A man named Kieran Aylward was then to give evidence, but though he had been served with an order to appear before the Special Criminal Court, he had not presented himself there, and he could not be found by police to serve the new notice either. It was suspected that he had gone on the run and was either in England or in the six counties. Evidence was heard about the circumstances in which Aylward had given a statement to the police before its contents were discussed. He'd told police that he had been asked to break up a car and that he'd be paid for the work. Walsh had brought him out to the Phelan farmhouse, giving a password to an old man on the little boreen there, and they broke up the car, which had been hidden in a barn, and they buried it. Aylward had said he'd never been paid for the work. 
Another superintendent told the court that in November or December of 1940, he had reported information to his superiors, which led him to believe that Devereux might have been murdered. This information was what became known as the Hayes Document, which it was later alleged that, in conjunction with police officers, Stephen Hayes had worked to frame Devereux as a police informer to cover his own work as a spy. This superintendent said after being given this information, he did not find out if Devereux had been a spy, nor did he go to Mrs. Devereux to pass on this information, and he never inquired as to whether Devereux had been working for the Gardee. The superintendent accepted that the defendant, Mr. O'Connor, had got a message from Dublin regarding Devereux, from Hayes or from someone else, and that someone had ordered Devereux's murder, but he had not been told who that was by those he had interviewed in relation to the case. Then the defendant, Mr. Davern, gave evidence. He had been arrested on the 26th of September, the day after the discovery of Devereux's buried car, and had made a statement. On the stand, he told the military court that he had been asked by a member of the guards to say that Plant, Walsh and O'Connor had planned to shoot Devereux, but Devern said he hadn't known anything about the man. Devern alleged that he was threatened by the police that he was to be shot if he didn't cooperate and make statements, and that he'd been told he'd never see his home again. Davern went on to describe an incident where he'd been brought out of the station at Cashel and driven to a laneway and assaulted. He was told that he was to make a statement that George Plant had shot Michael Devereux. After that, Devern said the police interviewed him again, coaching him what to say. Devern admitted that he made a statement, but insisted now that he would not have done so but for the threats against him. Devern initially refused to answer questions on cross-examination by Mr. McCarthy for the state, but then Mr. O'Brien advised Devern to cooperate. In the end, Devern said he hadn't complained of the treatment because he thought it might bring further retaliation. Despite the fact that Devern no longer stood by this statement, which related how he had gone up the mountain with Plant and that Devereux had been shot, it was still read to the court. Walsh's statement to the police was also read. He admitted that he had been a divisional training officer in the IRA with his area covering County Wexford. The divisional officer for Wexford had arrived at his house in September of 1940 and had showed him a dispatch which said that Devereux was to be removed or put away. They made plans to kill Devereux. Walsh said in his statement that a number of times on the evening Devereux had left his home, he, Walsh, had tried to convince Plant and the others not to go through with the plan, or at least delay it in the hopes that headquarters would call it off. He also gave details of his involvement in getting rid of Devereux's car. In closing, Mr. Rowe for Walsh said that although his client might be guilty of other offences, he was not guilty of murder. He had dissociated himself from the kidnap and had nothing to do with the affair at the time of the murder. O'Brien for Davron said that the state had failed to show his client had aided and abetted. It took the three officers sitting in the military court less than an hour to come to their decision. O'Connor was found not guilty. The president of the court said that the references to O'Connor in the other men's statements could not be corroborated to the court's satisfaction, and so he was acquitted. O'Connor shook hands with his co-accused as he left the dock in the military court. Shortly after, 
he was rearrested. Walsh, Plant, and Davern were all found guilty. They were sentenced to death. At that point, it was up to the government then to decide if the sentences were to be remitted or commuted. Days later, on the 2nd of March, news broke that the sentences of Michael Walsh and Patrick Davern were to be commuted to penal servitude for life. George Plant's sentence was not, though, and he was to be executed for his part in Devereux's death within the following 48 hours. Plant was executed by firing squad in Portleash Prison on the 5th of March, 1942. Plant's family were given no opportunity to visit him before his execution. His mother wasn't allowed to visit, nor was his infant son. The Plant family heard the news of the execution on the radio. Patrick Davern and Michael Walsh served four years of their sentences. The timing of this episode is really very apropos. At the moment, an appeal to the Supreme Court is expected by two Irish far-right media personalities who argue that the emergency measures put in place by the Irish government amidst the crisis that is the COVID-19 pandemic is yet another step in the erosion of the rights of Irish people. They say that COVID-19 is a hoax, and if it isn't and the virus is real, it's actually caused by 5G and George Soros, with the Irish government now complicit in a bizarre plan to destroy Irishness and erase Irish identity. Because, of course, they spout racist propaganda too. They'll remain nameless as they have a habit of harassing people who point out that they're full of it. But this situation, with those accused of murdering Michael Devereux, four private citizens who, it seemed, were targeted in the stripping of their rights of due process, fairness and justice at trial in a way that is easily arguable was not in the name of the greater good or the public interest. No doubt the IRA were responsible for violent acts and, during the emergency of World War II, put the security of the state in jeopardy. But surely, even then, the state is responsible for securing rights and ensuring justice in all cases. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating. Or honestly, just tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Scarlett Clark, Laurie Herbst, Marie Dowd McGing, Gordon Brown, Anne O'Donovan, Julia Messina, and LJ, who has upped her pledge. Thanks to all of you. Check out patreon.com forward slash mensreapod to see what's on offer. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week. Head to payoff.com forward slash mensrea to get started on the road to managing your debt. Start changing your health habits for the better with Noom. Head to noom.com forward slash mens to start your trial today. And join me in some fun downtime by playing Best Fiends. That's friends without the R. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show so do check them out. Before finishing up today, I want to take just a brief moment to address the events of the past week. I'm sending love and support to the Black Lives Matter movement in the US and worldwide. Justice, human rights and human dignity should not be a controversial matter. And yet here we are, again. 
we need to do better and really examine ourselves and our individual roles in upholding racism, as well as holding governments accountable. It's uncomfortable, yes, but it's nothing compared to living your life as a person of colour or a member of an ethnic minority. This is not an issue that only affects the US. Diversify your feeds online. Listen to the voices of people of colour. Give them your support and believe them. If you're in Ireland, you might consider following Maasai, the movement of asylum seekers in Ireland. Support those activists and raise them up. Contact your TDs. Listen and learn and donate if you can. We need to do the work. Our theme music is Quinn's song, The Dance Begins, by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Winita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. The Troubles in Northern Ireland was an extremely volatile 30-year period in which thousands of people were killed on both sides of the conflict. The Troubles podcast is an introduction to the major events that occurred during the Troubles. It is a non-partisan, true crime-style podcast that explains the motivations and planning behind the attacks, as well as the consequences. The first few episodes are out now and cover a range of different events, including when Lord Louis Mountbatten was blown up at sea by the IRA, as well as the Shankill Butchers are the most prolific serial killers in the United Kingdom. You can find the podcast at shows.acast.com slash the troubles podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts.